Hello, everybody. Good morning, afternoon, and evening to all of our participants joining us. Um, and welcome to our inaugural uh, IASA public webinar. So this is the first of what we are planning as a series that's going to bring to a public audience um, the fantastic research that IASA has to offer. And the as, as many of you are familiar with, hopefully, but if not, you will become familiar with it shortly because Albert will talk to you about it. Uh, IASA works in a number of different research areas on a number of different topics. Um, we work together uh, with stakeholders on the ground, we work together with stakeholders in government. And through this series, the goal is to share some of that fan, uh, fascinating, exciting, wonderful research, I'm slightly biased, uh, with you uh, and a more general audience, or a more public audience, a public uh, bring, bringing YASA research to a broader um, audience and also have more of a conversation. So what we really want here is not only to speak to you about what the cool research is that IASA is doing, but also to engage you in conversation and have um, the opportunity to have a conversation about what IASA does and how it impacts your everyday life. Um, so today we're going to kick off the series with our Director General, Albert Van Jarosveld. So prior to joining IASA in 2018, Albert was the Vice Chancellor and Principal of the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, and President and CEO of the South African National Research Foundation, who is still our South African national member. Um, Albert's research career is built on his uh, is has built on a focus on biodiversity, um, how to preserve it, interactions with climate change, and ecosystems. And um, with that, I am going to pass it over to Albert, who's going to talk to you today about systems thinking, which is the foundation of the work we do here at IASA. So thank you, Albert, and over to you. Thank you, Nicole. And I'm going to just share a screen with you so I can talk you through some slides. And uh, from my side, also a hearty welcome to everybody. And thank you for joining us for this conversation about applied systems thinking. Um, so what I'll do, I'll start off with some slides, give you a little bit of background about what we do at IASA, how we go about our business, uh, and then we'll start the conversation there. So I think a good place to start is this slide because it kind of illustrates the dilemma that policymakers and uh, decision makers face on a daily basis in terms of making decisions that are particular to the environment in which they function, but with a, re a really good understanding of the fact that it has consequences and implications elsewhere in the system. So you push in one end of the system, uh, there's going to be a response or some kind of reaction elsewhere. And this makes public decision making and policy making very difficult and tough uh, and key to what we do at IASA is to try and overcome some of these dilemmas about the interconnectedness uh, of the systems that we're trying to manage for the benefit of humanity uh, into the future. So these are some of the challenges of policy making. Uh, many of the policy planning processes are characterized by deep uncertainty. Uh, in, in the space that we want to work. Sometimes data scarcity, incompleteness of information and ambiguity in terms of understanding exactly what are the, all the relevant factors that we have to consider. There's a requirement for the policy to be feasible, uh, to make sure that it has, uh, finds traction and that, that there's a degree of ownership by stakeholders. And it's really important for us that sometimes policy needs to be made uh, with a degree of urgency. It can't just wait forever and we can't just do research forever to come up with viable solutions and uh, understand the best way forward. So this is why we at IASA propose a systems analysis approach. The Institute has been working on the systems analysis approach for the last 50 years. As you can see at the top right hand corner next year, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary and we look forward to some of you engaging with some of the activities we've got planned for that particular event. Uh, but achieving multiple goals uh, in a policy landscape isn't easy. And this is why we feel the systems analysis is one way uh, to find lasting solutions to these global problems and issues uh, and to make sure that we try and treat and deal with the components of the problem in an integrated way or to the best of our ability at least. So IASA is known for the models and the, the, that we that we develop over time and that have become core to many policy-making landscapes around the world. 
Uh, we have the message model, which is the energy model that everybody's familiar with. The gains model is the air pollution model. We have the community water model. We have our globe biome model. It's about integrated agriculture, bioenergy, and forestry, and a plethora of other models at IASA. These are just the, the key ones. And the strength of IASA's work is not only that we provide these models to have a better understanding of the potential options that are available for planning purposes, but we can also integrate them with population information and economic information and integrate the models with one another to an increasing degree over time. So this is really the strength that IASA is pursuing to make sure that we can integrate uh, our models and come up with integrated solutions and pathways for policy interventions. One of the key uh, benefits of a synthesis or a systems analysis approach is that it allows one to achieve much better and greater synthesis of the outcomes and the results of the research work that's been done. This is just an indication of the last six assessment report uh, that came out from the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And you'll see the other inputs by YASA researchers into the various uh, chapters as contributing authors or lead authors and coordinating lead authors. Uh, so we continue to do this work at an international level uh, and the IPCC is a key part of our work that we provide at IASA. Systems analysis also allows us to deal with um, trade-offs and synergies in a, in a met, better and a more coherent fashion. The slide just illustrates on the left-hand side the global policy costs of uh, particular interventions. If we focus on energy security alone, uh, this is the cost about 0.2% of the global GDP uh, to solve that problem, to solve it. the air pollution problem around the world will be close to 0.6% of the GDP. And if we deal with the climate change challenges that we face across the world, that could be more than 0.8% of the global GDP. But the important thing is that if you deal with all three of these collectively as an integrated solution, the total cost that's required to deal with all three of these is reduced by some 40%. So if you stack all of these costs on the left-hand side on top of each other, you'll see the cost saving is actually materialized. So integrated solutions doesn't just give you better options and better results and outcomes, it also provides with more cost-effective solutions. This is a interesting result just to illustrate the same principle again, a recent paper done through the Nature Map Consortium which was led by IASA, just demonstrates that the conservation target of 30% of land for conservation achieves a 70% conservation of terrestrial plant and vertebrate and animal species, a 62% conservation of vulnerable carbon stocks around the world, and a 68% conservation of all clean waters. So again, one particular goal can have multiple benefits and that means that we're actually making huge progress uh, by integrating our analysis in this regard. Dealing with systemic risks under conditions of uncertainty is a key component of what we try and achieve or to resolve with systems analysis. The Katzer model, which is the one that's illustrated here, uh, was used to develop an alternative ways of dealing with disasters uh, around the world. And uh, the Katzer model, model led to an outcome, a result that was implemented, first of all, by the Mexican government to issue catastrophe bonds to cover the risk of major earthquakes and hurricanes. The benefit of this, of course, is that it transfers the risk, risk from the national fiscus into the international reinsurance and capital markets. So it's a huge financial gain for the national treasury uh, in Mexico. And uh, following the lead taken by Mexico, 25 finance ministries have now followed suit and are implementing the same kind of mechanisms to ensure that they can respond very more effectively and more quickly to disasters and risks in the future. We also have natural disasters that impact on local economies. Uh, our agent-based model uh, that we've developed at IASA that includes thousands of uh, households, financial institutions and governments and firms actually allows us to truly understand the financial costs of local floods uh, in this particular instance, but allows us to really understand the economic consequences of local disasters 
for the way that the economy functions. Agent-based models are becoming really popular in this space, and it allows us to fully understand in a bottom-up fashion what exactly the economic consequences of these disasters are in the particular landscape. And we've been looking at this at a global level as well over a long period of time. Uh, disasters force millions of people to move from their homes uh, as a consequence. And by analyzing uh, this over a long period of time, we've managed to develop something called the average annual displacement uh, that happens not in a uniform way across the world, but it seems to be that the hotspots and areas where the risk of average annual displacement is much higher. And this is then distributed in this particular map between different income groups, and also to give you a sense of the risk of displacement per 10,000 people around the globe. So that there's some areas that are more prone uh, to displacement, and this can help us focus our policy efforts and interventions. EASA also understands that there are some areas of uncertainty and some areas of policy making that require participatory decision support systems, uh, smart games and social simulations to tackle some of these very tricky policy issues. Uh, we have to overcome sometimes different views around matters, but also to overcome some of the analysis paralysis that can emerge out of purely uh, doing number crunching and not getting people involved uh, in, in the conversations and the processes. So these soft system techniques that are driven through EASA also add value and come up with policy solutions that are unique and geared towards particular problems in particular areas of the world. We also do broad-based risk assessments. Uh, our popular methods that we used at EASA allows us to get a sense of risks of spatially distributed uh, risks uh, across the globe and the interdependencies. So um, the, this particular analysis just looks at the risk of failure of multiple bread baskets, which would have severe consequences in terms of wheat and rice uh, for the global population. But it's important that we also understand not only the local consequences of what we do and the local risks, but also the global broad risks that may affect uh, the viability and lifestyles of people around the world. Systems analysis is really um, very well positioned to allow us to come up with solutions and answers at multiple scales. And when we talk about multiple scales, we're not just talking about spatial scales because we can do analysis at a global scale, at the regional level, also at the country specific level, or even uh, finer than that. But we also keep in mind the idea of temporal scale. And so this is a particular example where our water futures model was used to come up with a very good illustration of how the Malaysian landscape suffers from seasonal water scarcity as a consequence of the rainfall patterns, but also the water management regimes in that particular area. On the spatial scale, of course, we're also interested to understand where the pressure points are at spatial, different spatial scales and to understand uh, the consequences of uh, land management, water and energy security in the Indus Valley, which this particular study focused on, really brought together an analysis of the disciplines themselves, but also the temporal and spatial scales and the consequences of different climate regimes for water security, uh, energy security, and land use options uh, in the Indus Basin. This, is, this kind of integrated work uh, is one of the uh, key bits of the develop recent developments at IASA, and we're going to take this forward uh, in the foreseeable future. We also use our systems approaches to unpack some of the key drivers of change. Uh, population trajectories have been a key driver of what's happened around the globe for many decades. Uh, IASA has made some important contributions to the understanding of population trajectories around the world. Uh, they listed at the bottom of this figure in 1998. Uh, IASA was the first organization to say that the doubling of world population was unlikely, wasn't going to happen. By 2001, uh, IASA predicted the end of world population growth. By 2008, uh, Yasa predicted the acceleration of global population aging as a factor across the globe. 
And then in 2011, uh, IASA brought out key research to indicate how education leads to lower population growth and higher economic growth. And that's followed by some recent evidence that's just been published uh, quite hot off the press to just demonstrate that even in a country with like China, where we have an aging population prospect or a future, uh, what is really important in terms of maintaining economic growth and competitiveness in those populations is not necessarily the size of the population or the size of the workforce, it's the quality of the workforce. And this just goes back to the importance of education as demonstrated in the previous slide as well. We at IASA believe also in the democratization of science. Um, we have a very active citizen science research group working at, uh, at IASA, generating new data sets, um, data sets on forest cover, land use and cropland distributions around the world. Um, these are some of the examples on the right hand side using our GeoWiki platform. And so it's one of these engagements where we try and bring citizen science uh, to the fore. We try and bring citizens into the science uh, data generation process in a way that will improve our abilities to actually respond to the sustainable development goals uh, in the near future. We also engage with uh, helping um, local farmers, uh, small scale farmers, to share uh, best practices that they practice uh, as far as uh, the preparation of, of the fields are concerned, the fertilization regimes, uh, irrigation patterns, etc., even market information. The idea is that by sharing best practices, they can actually um, improve their productivity uh, in terms of their particular uh, field that they're cultivating, but also learn about what other people are doing to make sure that they can hopefully provide a, a more viable subsistence existence for their families and for their extended families. Systems analysis are, is really useful for us to develop scenarios of likely futures that may emerge. Um, this particular analysis, the world in 2050, focused on the long-term sustainability around the world and uh, trying to achieve that by uh, pathways that would allow us to achieve the SDG goals by 2030. Um, and this particular analysis was done through a very interesting analysis, backcasting approaches were used. In other words, creating an ideal future and then saying, what are the different pathways that we can use to, to achieve that objective through achieving the sustainable development goals by 2030? And then, of, of course, taking into account the different departure points that different parts of the world may have in terms of achieving that sustainability. This kind of analysis is really useful because it allows us to uh, develop alternative policy uh, options for governments and then they can decide which of these options are more viable and which of these development pathways are the ones they would like to pursue as far as achieving their own sustainability objectives into the future. Part of uh, achieving sustainability is, of course is, requires cooperation uh, and, and this is just an example of a project that IASA is involved with is the Fable Initiative, uh, driven by the SDSNN network. Um, and it focuses on a bottom-up approach to collect the relevant information that's required uh, in terms of food, agriculture, biodiversity, land use, and energy requirements, and to form a global picture of our progress towards achieving the um, sustainable development goals. This is designed as a, as a transdisciplinary initiative and therefore requires co-design, co-production and co-implementation as a key component of delivering on the objectives of the FABLE project. EASA has been involved also in long-term work and air pollution, particularly in the European context. Those of you that can remember the acid rain problems of the 1970s, uh, driven by SO2 emissions. And this just demonstrates the three key policy interventions that were made to respond to the challenges after the 1970s. The Convention on Transboundary Air Pollution, the National Emissions Ceiling Directive, and thematic clean air strategy essentially resulted in reductions of SO2 uh, emissions since the 1980s to levels by 2020 where they are now. 
And uh, the blue, dark blue background just illustrates what where the SO2 emissions would have been without these three interventions. And so it just demonstrates that the broad collaboration and cooperation uh, can resolve these key environmental problems that we face. IASA as an institution was born out of science diplomacy uh, and we promote and uh, encourage multilateralism in terms of the science that we do. Uh, IASA also supports the European Green Deal in a number of ways. Um, our couple of our models, the GAINS model, which is the air pollution model, Globiome, which is the land use uh, model, and the global forestry models are now standard tools that are being used by the European Commission in order to achieve the objectives of the European Green Deal and be very proud of the fact that uh, IASA can contribute to this collective objective in the European environment. IASA was also key to generating the 1.5 degree Paris Agreement uh, from the IPCC. 10% uh, of the lead authors in that particular endeavor was, was led by, was for, from IASA. Uh, and we will continue to engage with the IPCC into the future as a key contribution from this institution. We also work in wider economic issues. Uh, IASA was a very important uh, platform for initiating conversations about wider European Eurasian uh, economic integration uh, across a number of domains of economic integration as listed in the second bullet point there. But there were three in-depth studies in terms of transport, foreign direct investment and convergence of standards that were, was delivered as a way of facilitating broader uh, Euro European and Eurasian integration into the future. So IASA in Luxembourg, just outside uh, Vienna, for those of you that haven't been to visit us yet, uh, conducts multidisciplinary research to help policymakers find long-term solutions to some of these global challenges that we all face, uh, these shared problems that are common to many parts of the world. IASA was established in 1972 as a 12th national member organization, which was the East-West kind of institution uh, established during the Cold War, but has now become a broader uh, in international institution that actually serves the global agenda rather than the narrow East-West agenda as originally formulated. We've just launched our new strategy that has four key drivers in the middle and three pressures that uh, impact on those drivers. And this strategy has been operationalized within EASA by rearranging ourselves in these six broad research programs that we run at EASA that hopefully allows us to make the kinds of policy impacts that we would like to achieve over the coming uh, decade. So EASA as an institution can help to structure problems and assist in making sense out of the kinds of problems that are faced by different parts of the world, find compromises among stakeholders, and to provide social learning and exchange of best practices as far as policy development in a complex world is concerned. These are the tools of the trade that you will encounter when you come and work with us or do research with us. These are the skills that we bring to bear to systems analysis as a discipline uh, and to ensure that we get the best out of uh, the available information and data to support the best possible decision making. And we apply our IASA systems analysis toolkit uh, to make sure that robust decision making is done and that everybody is involved, that needs to be involved, and that it becomes a progressive joint learning exercise to develop options and solutions that uh, are going to be useful and are going to be impactful. We as an institution spend an awful lot of time training the next generation of systems and analyst leaders. We have our Young Scientist Summer Program, as you can, as you can see reflected on this side, slide where we bring together some 50 young people from around the world on an annual basis to learn about systems analysis, to learn about how they can apply systems analysis in their own research and how they can bring, take systems thinking back to their parts of the world. So thank you for listening, and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Albert. Um, 
So I just realized I'm just making sure I'm unmuted myself. I thank you, Albert, for that wonderful presentation. I just thought I'd follow up very quickly before I go to the questions. And we've got some good ones uh, in the wings um, it, by letting people know that actually the, one of the last things that Albert was mentioning there about our young scientists, our young summer scientist program, uh, it's opening up very shortly. I believe it's the 4th of October, so as early as next Monday. So please, uh, if you're interested, if you're interested in system science, if you know some um, promising PhD students who should be interested in system science, do share that information with them. We'd love to have them as part of our as, as part of our group. Um, so Albert, I, I'm going to start with uh, the, the, the first question that I have on um, uh, the first question that I have on the list. Uh, and it's a really good one. You're going to love this one. Um, so what because it's, it's good because it's hard. Uh, so I, the question comes from Zilia Anam, and I apologize if I mispronounced your name. And the question is, I was wondering what ways we can measure the short and long term impacts of the integrated models that IASA has put forward on the ground. Um, additionally, will the ways for impact assessment be country and region specific? Okay, thank you very much for the question. Um, this is something that we at IASA um, really focus on, um, besides the research publications that we generate and the sort of citation profiles that, that we generate, we really are concerned together with our council to make sure that IASA makes policy impact that really changes the lives of people around the world. Uh, now, measuring policy impact is not easy. Um, there are instruments around at the moment that we are exploring and to, to measure that. But I think at the end of the day, it's about how frequently EASA work is taken up in policy documents and in policy decision-making uh, platforms. And that is a now becoming a measurable um, uh, guideline that will give us a sense as to whether IASA really makes impact uh, um, across the world. This analysis can be done at a national level, it can be done at a regional level, it can be done at a global level. Uh, the tool that we use is the, for this regard will probably be a tool called Overton uh, that, that we'll be exploring and that could be useful for other people to explore as well. But besides that, we also look very carefully at the take-up that we get for our models in terms of the national planning activities that go on around the world. Um, the message energy model, of course, I know is, is key to the Brazilian government's energy planning activities. It's been taken up by the Chinese government as a central planning tool. Our air pollution model gains has been used by large numbers of countries to, to uh, plan the air pollution initiatives and interventions uh, through our partnership with the World Bank, which has been key to allow and foster that kind of relationship. And then, of course, the models that I mentioned that are a key component of the European Union's ongoing planning efforts for the future as well. So we, we really work very closely with national governments. And uh, one of the measures that we look at is to really look at whether they use these tools as a standard operating procedure in terms of their planning, because then we're really making an impact. Thank you. Um, so our, that, our next question uh, has uh, similar, draws similar lines, and it's from uh, Micah Rental. And the question is, often data exists, but sits within different organizations. So national ministries, various research groups, the private sector, and access can be tricky and slow. Um, so in your experience, what are the main challenges regarding data access for global systems analysis? And what are the main solutions for overcoming these challenges? Okay, yep, data is always an issue. Um, I think you've put your finger on one of the problems. Um, we at IHASA are working very hard towards making sure that data sets and the data that we engage with and work with and use in our analysis uh, is open access. Uh, we're putting a lot of pressure and working with CoData and other organizations to make sure that we, we do that. I think it's important in any public policy decision-making process that the, the models that are used um, together with the data that we use to generate the results and the outcomes needs to be publicly available so that people can actually review the outcomes and the solutions and allows people to critically analyze uh, the decisions and the policy uh, interventions that have been made. Um, I think there's a growing momentum around the world uh, to drive 
both data and it's now becoming an, and a requirement for many of our funders as well that data and models need to be open access. So I think the momentum is there. We're moving in the right direction. We're not there yet. Besides that, I just want to point us back again to the idea of the citizen science uh, movement, because I think particularly when it comes to new and novel data sets that can be generated through the engagement and involvement of citizens from around the world, we at EASA want to make sure that it's open access and that everybody can use it and it's actually freely available. Some people still keep data sets under the rug. Um, I don't think that's in the interest of science. I think we need to be moving towards a science that's open, democratic, and can be used for effective and efficient decision making. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Albert. And I couldn't have said it better myself. Obviously, that's why we have you here. Um, okay, so when uh, another question that, that's come in is, um, how does, uh, does EASA work with communities and individuals? And this is coming from uh, the point uh, that the top-down approaches look like they have been, haven't been as successful as they might have been. Uh, and how do you work at building ideas from citizens directly? I, I wouldn't say top-down uh, approaches have totally failed us, but I think that they face, they face challenges. I think your, your analysis is quite correct. And this is one of the reasons why we are driving uh, much of our activities towards participatory processes, uh, which are bottom-up processes. Uh, and that's why the soft systems analysis ideas and approaches that we've been developing are really keen. By using communities and engaging with communities directly, uh, such as the Iswell project that I refer to, but also a similar analysis was done in the Zambezi Basin uh, in, in Southern Africa. Uh, and our water community work around Lake Victoria in Central Africa, by getting communities involved to find out what the challenges and the issues are for those local communities, and then to combine the information and data together with our models to plan potential futures or potential pathways for developing or strengthening water security for argument's sake, we get a much better buy-in from the local communities and from the local authorities so that they're part of the planning process. It's not just a question of us throwing solutions at a community. We need to make sure that they are part of the process because otherwise there's no buy-in. The implementation is unlikely to happen. And that's why we're really keen on the idea of, of the co-development of the, the, the problems and the issues, uh, the co-production of potential solutions, and then to assist with the implementation, the co-implementation approach, the transdisciplinary approach for us is becoming increasingly important to actually find traction on the ground for the policies. Excellent. Um, so our, follow, our next question come, comes from uh, Uno Sveden, and again, I apologize if I have mispronounced your name. Um, and it says, uh, many thanks for this nice and impressive presentation of YASA now and from where it comes. A general issue in systems approaches has to do with the balance between approaches of the overall totality versus investigations about the particulars on applied domains, sectors, decisions, decision-making levels, etc. But with regards to the grand picture, there are always general assumptions. For example, how do you use science? What are the balance points between schools of thought? Uh, so what do you think is the overriding IASA position on the school of thought with regards to systems about the totality in understanding the world at large? And this is again coming from Uno Sveden from the Stockholm Resilience Center. Yeah, I see. All right, okay. Uno, thank you very much. Um, I think it's it's an important question, and I think it's something that we, Diasa, together with people in your institution, uh, spend a lot of time thinking about. I think it really is important. I do want to say that I don't think our ambition at Diasa is to understand uh, the global world in that necessarily in that regard. I think what we try and do is to get a better understanding of the key drivers that are likely to impact on a decision-making process. Uh, bring those drivers together uh, to understand better the trade-offs and the synergies that may be possible in that landscape and the feedbacks that are relevant in that space uh, and generate from that limited understanding the potential options that are available for moving the system forward to whatever direction uh, the, the stakeholders would like to see. 
And so I think it's a question of us trying to minimize unintended consequences in terms of the outcomes of the analysis and the policies that are implemented uh, while we try and develop our improved understanding of how the system actually functions. These, these systems really are not, um, are not transferable necessarily from, or the system's understanding is not necessarily transferable from one part of the globe to the other. There are always peculiarities and particular circumstances that have to take in, be taken into account. But I think rather than just taking a siloed approach and ignoring unintended consequences or potential secondary effects, we try and minimize the risk of those uh, surprises catching us uh, down the line. Thank you very much. Now, as the host, I'm going to take the liberty of asking you uh, a couple of additional questions while I, um, I, I leave a little bit of time if people have any more questions to join us. But I'm curious, Albert, if you could tell us a little bit of what brought you to systems analysis um, research and how, how did you come to, to the point where we find you today? Um, I think just to, to reflect on my career up to now, um, I I've always been interested in the systems perspective uh, as a young researcher, even when I was working as a physiologist, I was interested in adopting, and I still think it's an underexplored area and understanding of physiology as, as systems perspectives uh, in that regard. Uh, as my career advanced to conservation and biodiversity issues, I started taking a more global view in terms of the, the drivers and the issues that are relevant. And I've always, at the periphery of my research, and it has never, never been the core part of, of, of my research, the way that the Yasa researchers uh, actually function today. I've always had an interest in systemic solutions and systems views of the world, because I just feel it gives us a better opportunity to provide more balanced and more relevant solutions at the end of the day. So I kind of came into Yasa as a very interested party, uh, but this systems analysis and the way that IASA researchers work today was never the core of my research as an individual, but I've always been at the periphery of that space uh, and trying to use uh, that kind of thinking to, to, to do better work in, in the areas that I was involved with. And so leading from that, so now here at IASA, as the IASA's Director General since 2018, um, if you had to pick only one thing that you find the most interesting, the most, the, that you love the most about IASA, and I know it's hard because I being here, I know there's lots of things to love about IASA, but what is the one thing that you would share with our audience today that is the most wonderful thing that you think, uh, you think of when you're thinking about IASA, your favorite thing? I think the challenges that our research community is trying to tackle are daunting. Um, I think they are, can sometimes appear to be overwhelming. And what I see at IASA is a very deep potential for us to actually really solve these problems. I think we can do it. Uh, I think many of the work that's being conducted here and that's released into the public domain speak to what can be done with good sound analysis and that we can actually move society forward substantially uh, very quickly. But it requires an inquisitive mind. It requires an openness to new and novel solutions and new novel approaches. And it requires a flexibility in terms of public policy making and public, public uh, decision making that I think we have to work at and cultivate a little bit as an institution, uh, not just ourselves, but I think collectively around the world. I think this tension between what I think are really daunting problems and what I, the potential that I see at a place like IASA for actually tackling those head on um, is really exciting for me. 
And the last question I'm going to ask, I think, um, is uh, if you had one piece of advice. So this is wonderful opportunity for me as the host. I get to ask Albert all the questions I want to know. Um, so if you had one piece of advice for young researchers who are thinking about system science or who are who, who for them it's, it's like it was when you were sort of uh, in your career path at the periphery, um, what would that that advice be, and how would you convince them that they should come and visit us here at EASA? I would just simply say, I hope that you will spend a bit of time and find out about IASA. Go scroll through our websites. We're launching our new website, uh, lined, lined up with our new strategy to, within the next month or so. Um, so please um, spend a bit of time, find out about IASA. I think you'll find much there uh, that will interest you. Uh, and I'm sure you'll find one way or another of engaging with IASA to take your own research career forward. I, we need more systems thinkers uh, in terms of solving the problems that we, we need as, uh, that we tackle across the globe. One thing that we've learned in the sustainability debate is that uh, no country, uh, no part of a country and no region can achieve sustainability by themselves. It needs a collaborative cooperative effort. And I think the kind of systems thinking that's required to achieve that uh, I hope you'll find a way of steering your own career in that direction. And we look forward to seeing all of you at IASA in one shape or another. All right. So uh, right from here, we have two more questions and we still have a bit of time. So um, the, uh, there are questions in the chat. One is from uh, Raoul Mille. Uh, since 1972, uh, which he likes to remind us is a long time. I'd like to think it's not that long, but that's okay. Uh, in systems analysis, what are the important steps and the future steps? Um, so from MIT, the limits to growth model or to the future models? Well, uh, I think limits to growth is a, is a benchmark for everybody that has an interest in systems analysis. And I think it's, it's been there for, for, for some period of time, but I think systems analysis is progressing and uh, developing very rapidly. Uh, first of all, around the quality and the kind of data sets that we have access to these days, I think we could not possibly have understood what remote sensing could do for, for generating the kind of information we need in the, from a systems perspective. Um, I think citizen science itself will contribute in the foreseeable future. But also from an analytical perspective, I think what we can achieve with systems analysis um, just using some of the modern technologies like machine learning and artificial intelligence has stepped up the game in terms of what's achievable and what the ambitions are of systems approaches uh, into the future. And I'm one that I've always said to people at the Institute, I'm looking forward to the, the real advent of quantum computing uh, down the line, because that will just increase the dimensionality of the problems we can tackle and deal with. And it will make systems analysis so much more viable, uh, but so much more exciting as well. And uh, I really think there's a big future in that space. So anybody that has a real keen interest in the future of quantum computing, machine learning, uh, applied, applying that to artificial intelligence domains. Um, just to give you one example that I think will give people a, a, a bite of the cherry, if you like, if, um, in terms of our recent work with SAS on the Amazon forest, we've been using remote sense data, uh, feeding pictures to a broad citizen science community, asking them to identify parts of the Amazon forest that had been disturbed by human interference. And we're using that to build a training data set that we're feeding an AI with. Uh, and we hope that we, through this process, can find and uh, develop an AI that can give us high levels of accuracy of defining of identifying human disturbance, can do it much more rapidly than uh, we can do in a manual lab situation at the moment, or even an automated lab situation, uh, and allow us to scan the Amazon forest very rapidly, very quickly, to give us near real-time data about human disturbances and actually manage our environments much more efficiently and effectively into the future. So just one little example of uh, some of the work that, that's ongoing. That's an excellent example. It leads us right into the next question that I'm going to present to you. Um, so how does YASA find a way forward regarding systems analysis with colliding views? So for example, um, to protecting forests or enhancing use of forests for biofuels, is it possible to compromise on this in the future? It is. Um, there's a very important 
piece of work that we did uh, in Brazil, strangely enough, where we're looking at the potential forest futures uh, in the Brazilian environment. And by having implementing what we what we call a forest target uh, for Brazil as a sustainable forest landscape, uh, we demonstrated that it is possible to expand and grow agriculture in Brazil by focusing on intensification of cattle production and meat production uh, as an alternative. But at the same time, also, when we do talk about land conversion for other agricultural um, purposes that we focus on areas of land that have already been transformed and being used for other purposes rather than focusing on the forest as an easy get to uh, uh, resource uh, in that regard. So yes, it is always possible to think about alternative solutions. It is always possible to, to, to find compromises. Uh, land is not the only currency in terms of delivering a, a good livelihoods. If we have in more intensive, intensive agriculture, uh, agricultural practices, uh, if we focus our efforts on minimizing the land use consequences of agriculture, we can come up with alternative ways of dealing with these problems. And I'm sure the kind of thinking can be applied to all sorts of issues, palm oil production around the world, uh, and even naturally um, occurring um, a loss of forests around the world at the same time. So I think it's something that we have to apply our minds to. But again, um, again, it takes flexibility, it takes alternatives, and we need to really work on trying to find alternatives, ways, alternative ways of living that will lessen and reduce the impact on the planet as well. And the final question I have in my queue is, can systems thinking play a role in combating the populist anti-rational impulses we see in so many countries? So this one's a tough one. <laughs> um, I think for me, the key is that in order for scientific decision-making to, to play a bigger influence in policy um, creation around the world, I think the key to that is a citizenship that is scientifically literate, that understands why science provides the kinds of answers it does, understands how science gets to those answers. Um, my sense about political decision-making is that um, politicians will use decision-making process that we allow them to get away with. Um, and as citizens, if we demand from uh, our politicians to take decisions using certain criteria or certain approaches, um, because we feel it's in our best interest. And I think you're already starting to see some of that movement happening in some of the more recent elections that have happened in the European landscape uh, in that regard, where there's simply a move towards citizens demanding rational decision-making uh, from their, their leadership increasingly so uh, in the more recent times. Um, I think we did go through a very bad patch where I think alternative decision-making was became very popular, but I think it's, that's going to be a pretty short fuse because it's not going to be, it's not going to work out well for people that, that go down that little rabbit hole. Well, thank you very much. Um, that was a tough one. I that was a, I, I, that was awesome. Thanks, Albert. <laughs> um, so I think with that we have gone through all of the questions. But I wanted to know if you had any sort of final messages that you wanted to share with our audience um, before I start uh, regaling them with information about how they can join our next webinar. Thank you, Nicole. Um, I, I think I've kind of said what I had to say, but uh, let me just simply say that um, I think for, for us at EASA, um, key to our work is to ensure that we can collectively, by taking hands and uh, working collaboratively across the world, I think we can create a better future for humanity. I think we can create a dignified future for all. Uh, and I think that should be our aspiration and that's what we should be trying to do. I think it is possible. I don't think uh, any solutions that create um, the haves and the have nots uh, is going to be sustainable. Any solution that creates uh, increasing equalities 
um, is going to undermine the ability for everybody around the world to have a dignified future. And uh, I think when people talk about choices like, you know, coal mining or uh, um, renewable energies uh, being applied, I don't think those are the real choices that face us. I think these are short-term choices that are going to have a real impact. Uh, but the real choice we're facing is, are we facing a future for humanity that is dignified and is, includes a decent living? Or do we face a future where we're going to live like social insects because of the environments we've created for ourselves? And I think that's the real choice that we face. And I think we should face up to it and start uh, responding appropriately. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to spend with us today to answer some questions. Um, and thank you all of you to those of you who have stayed with us and participated for all of the wonderful questions. We've gotten to um, pull apart some really interesting thoughts. We've got to ask Albert some really tough questions. It's been fascinating to hear his answers. Uh, and now you've also heard firsthand why IASA is such a wonderful place. Now, of course, like I said before, I am totally biased, but I think that uh, this is this hopefully gives us the opportunity, this seminar and seminars like this will hopefully give us the opportunity to have more conversations like this. So we we will be, um, we will be, this is the first of, of a, a, an ongoing seminar series. Our next seminar will happen in um, October, at the end of October, at the same time, same place about, uh, but you'll have information on that one just following this seminar. And it will be on a biodiversity theme. So we'll be sharing information for that. Please uh, do feel free to follow us in social media so that you never miss the opportunity to see EASA public, EASA public webinar series. Um, check out the YSSP that is opening uh, next week so that you, you can have the opportunity to get a better understanding of what our our YSSP program looks like and if it's a good fit for you. And um, following this webinar, we'll also be sending out a survey because as we're venturing into the, the public webinar space, we want to make sure that we're uh, you know sharing the messages in ways that are working for you, that we're addressing topics that are of interest. So hopefully you'll be able to um, provide us with some of that information, provide any feedback. Also feel free to reach out to um, me directly and I'm happy to also um, answer any questions that you might have if you want. So with that, I would like to ask everyone to join me in thanking Albert for being the very first YASA public webinar series um, speaker. And, uh, and thank you all for being the first uh, audience for us and invite you all to join us again next time. Thank you very much and have a good evening. Thanks, and everybody. good morning. Well, bye-bye. <laughs>